this is definitely some of the strongest language in the New Testament. It's, it's one of these sections where it's very difficult to hear, especially if you recognize, as you should as a Westerner, that you are rich. We are. Compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. And to read these words, you think, man, can there be anything harsher being said? But we have to see these things in their context. The only way we're going to understand what's being said is to understand who wrote these things, when they wrote these things, and to whom they wrote these things. The problem with these kinds of sections in Scripture, really the problem with any part of Scripture is we can read it and we can misapply it to ourselves because we don't understand what it was originally intended to say. What, What... James, in this case, wanted to say to those in the first century he was writing to. Now, you need to remember that James, the the person who's writing this little letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. He he was a man, as we remember, who, who, um, as he saw Jesus, uh, as he grew up with Jesus as his older brother, as he saw Jesus live a life that he could never accuse him of doing anything wrong, that's a bit of pressure by itself, isn't it? Uh, and then he saw Jesus uh, begin his earthly ministry. He saw the miracles that Jesus did. He heard the sermons that Jesus gave. He, he saw who Jesus was. And the Bible's really clear in the New Testament and the Gospels that, that James did not believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that he was God's chosen king, that he was God the Son. He still didn't believe. He thought he was a bit nuts. Not because Jesus had done things wrong, but he thought, how could this be? How could he claim to be God's only son? He's my older brother. But something happened to James. The Bible says specifically that Jesus, after he dies, after he resurrects, he appears to James. He shows himself to James. Not just kind of a a phantom passing by, but a resurrected person who came to James and said, this is me. It's me, big brother Jesus. It's me, God the Son. And something happened to James. He had a radical transformation. He recognized that Jesus was not just his bigger brother, but was his Lord and his God, and he began to follow Jesus. Now, James was a part of the church in Jerusalem, the sort of first church that was the first Christian church in Jerusalem, and eventually James became uh, the pastor or a pastor in Jerusalem. And so when James is writing this, he's, he's writing very early in the history of Christianity, and he's writing to these believers who are in Jerusalem, People who are in a situation where that they, they probably, most of the people that were in his church remembered Jesus walk on the earth. They actually had heard Jesus speak, watched Jesus do miracles. Many of these people had heard that. Specifically, there were many people in this day or in this church that he was writing to that saw Jesus ascend into heaven, literally physically ascend into heaven. We read about this in the book of Acts. Now when Jesus said things, while the multitudes that were there, he says, as he went up, behold, and gazing up into heaven. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, 
here they are. They, these guys are Jewish people who were waiting for God's chosen king. Jesus shows up on the scene, does all the things that they would expect the Messiah to do, and then some. And then after he does what they didn't expect him to do, which is die, <laughs> he comes back to life. And coming back to life for 40 days, he teaches these people. And at the end of that 40 days, as he gives them what their, their, basically their rules are, their goals are, which is to go and teach people about him, he basically ascends right before them in heaven. I'm, we're talking like literally, beam me up, Scotty. You know, they're there and they're watching him ascend into the clouds and they're just like, what just happened? And after he even disappears from sight, they're just kind of still staring up in the air like, what just happened? What do we do? Now, the thing is, when they do that, these angels say, listen, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back. Now, this is one of the things that the New Testament is super clear about. In fact, you can't get through a single letter in the New Testament without this theme of Jesus' return coming up. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of controversy about the details around uh, Jesus' second coming, what that's going to look like, how it's going to work. But the reality of it is super clear in the New Testament. It's really clear. He's going to come back. Now, these people that James are writing to, they, as they were waiting for Jesus to come back, as they thought he'd come back any day, they began to, well, they began to experience some seriously unjust things. Remember, one of their hopes as the Jews, Jewish people was that the Messiah would come when God would send his chosen king. That chosen king would rule the earth and rid the earth of injustice. All injustice would be gone. And so here they are, they know that Jesus is the Messiah, no one did miracles like him, nobody taught like him, nobody predicted their own death and resurrection like him, they saw him as a resurrected man, they communicated with him, they saw him ascend into heaven, and they're waiting for justice to come, God's kingdom to come in its fullness, and they're waiting. And as they're waiting, they're beginning to experience more and more persecution. Think about this. Think about what it would be like to be in their shoes, to be people who were a people whose whole history was full of experiencing injustice. How they longed to see God fulfill his promises to them. As a people who were under the Roman government experiencing quite a bit of injustice, longing to see the Messiah come, God's chosen king to come and bring justice. And then he comes, but he descends, he ascends into heaven. He's gone. He, they don't see him anymore. And they're thinking, how long, O Lord, before you come back? And, and even make matters worse, things are actually getting worse for them. This is the context that James is writing in. He's writing to people who are expecting Jesus to come back any day, and while they're waiting, things are getting more and more difficult for them simply because they are waiting for Jesus to come back. Now, when James writes uh, in verse 1 of chapter 5, and he starts off by saying, come you rich. He's identifying people not who just have money, but people who worship their money. There's kind of four categories, you could say economically, that the Scripture deals with. The Scripture kind of divides uh, human beings in four economic categories, okay? I should have put this in a chart, but I didn't. Forgive me. One would be the, uh, the ungodly poor. That is, poor people who are poor because they refuse to do the things that God would ask them to do. 
They refuse to work. Uh, they have dependency problems. They're uh, the, the ungodly poor. The second category would be the godly poor. Those who want to walk with God, but because of circumstances that are not totally up to them, they are, whether it's persecution or injustice, they love God, they trust God, but they find themselves completely impoverished. The other category would be the godly rich, those who love God, those who follow His commandments, but happen to have much money. The other would be the ungodly rich, those who don't trust God, but trust in their riches. Now, God deals with all four of those categories. And all four of those categories of human beings, regardless of what their economic status is, all of them need, according to Scripture, Jesus to save them. They all need forgiveness. They all need to be made right with God, and no one can be made right with God, no matter how much or how little money they have, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. It's important because in our day and age, we have two extremes. We have those who would say, look, you're, if you're poor, you're righteous. If you're poor, you're automatically a victim. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Some, some people are poor because they are victims. That happens a lot in our culture. But some people are poor because they make stupid choices. Some people are poor because they, they thumb their nose at how God says to live. And the other way is some people think, oh, no, you, you look at religious television, you would think, no, if you're godly, you're rich. If you really have faith, you're going to have a nice car. If you really have faith, you're going to have great clothes. You're going to have a good house. Life's going to be wonderful if you really have faith. That's not what the Bible says either. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, and Jesus said, speaking of himself, I have no place to lay my head. Foxes have holes, and, you know, but I've got no place to live. He knew what poverty was like. In fact, the Scripture says of him, though he was rich, i.e. when he was in heaven, he laid aside his riches and became poor for our sake. So this idea that your economic status automatically says something about your spirituality is false. It's completely false. And we have to understand it's false because if we don't understand it's false, you know what we're going to do? We're going to judge each other. We're going to judge each other, we're going to condemn each other, and we're not going to do justice that God calls us to do. Now all that to say, it's a lot of introduction I know, but all that to say is here, James is wanting to deal with, initially, he's wanting to deal with the ungodly rich. But the whole theme of this section, really, what he's wanting to motivate us in, in the rest of chapter 5, is teaching us how to endure to the end. Remember, the whole theme of James is faith that works. Faith that expresses itself in action. And he's calling us to a faith, he calls people to a faith that expresses itself in endurance. It's willing to endure to the end. It's willing to endure injustice. And he starts off by giving us really what we're going to see today. He's going to give us sort of, he's going to describe three realities that are meant to motivate us to endure to the end. And the first thing he's going to deal with, and this is the hardest one I think to deal with, to see, is the sobriety of God's judgment. The sobriety of God's judgment. He says to these ungodly rich, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. That language, weep and howl, it's kind of, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where there was like a, 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 some sort of a disaster or a car accident and someone's in just agonizing pain and they're weeping and howling over that agonizing pain. That's the language he's using. It's very powerful. He says, look, at your riches, are, your riches are corrupted, he says. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And he, ba he basically says, look, their corrosion is going to be echoed when your flesh is eaten like fire, or it's consumed with fire. Heavy things. 
the imagery there is, is unmistakably talking about a final judgment. But it's also interesting because the language that James is using echoes the language of his big brother Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. Notice in Mark chapter 6, listen. Jesus gives warning to, to his followers, those who are listening to him. He says, listen, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus is clear, no man can serve, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now here's what Jesus is, 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 is making really clear. He's making clear that there's, God calls us to an exclusive kind of faith. You know, Jesus was, was really clear as well. He says he doesn't require us to have great faith. And that's encouraging to me because sometimes I don't have great faith. He doesn't say to us, oh, you have to believe with everything you have. He says, no, if you have faith like a mustard seed, he says that's enough. Because it's not how much faith you have, it's, it's where you're putting your faith or in whom you're putting your faith. But what he's saying here as well is that faith, as small as it is, has to be exclusively in something. You, you can't say, I, t- I trust God, but I also trust my good old hard work. Well, I trust God, but I also trust I got plenty in the bank. Well, I trust God, but fill in the blank. No, you can't worship God and something else. There's no two ways about it. This is what he's trying to say. And so what, what's happening here is, is James is l- using language as if these people have ignored what Jesus said and said, you know what, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to trust mammon. We're going to serve money. So he's talking about this sober judgment towards those who worship money. Now, notice what he says also, drop down to verse 5. He says to the same group of people, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Now, he talks about living in pleasure. I think it's really important to understand what I'm, what I'm saying here, or maybe what I'm not saying here. I am not saying here that it's wrong to experience pleasure. It's not. In fact, more importantly, the Bible does not teach that. In fact, what, what James is talking about is echoed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. Listen to this. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy these words. He says, those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, but the desire to be rich, that's their goal, they fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Notice what he says, famous verse, for the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have even strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So what's the deal? What about those who are rich? Can you be a Christian and still have wealth? Listen to what he says. Here's the command. Command those who are rich, this is believing rich, in this present age not to be haughty. In other words, don't think I must be really doing really well because I got money. It's God's grace that you have wealth. Nor to trust, notice, in uncertain riches, but in the living God, notice, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good and be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. In other words, 
what James is saying here is not, it's wrong to have pleasure. He's saying it's wrong that your life's goal would be pleasure, would be comfort. Our life's goal should be to know the God who made us, who's redeemed us, who's preparing us to live with Him forever. That's what our goal should be. That's what we've been made. We've been created to know Him. The ultimate that God can offer to us as humankind is Himself. He's created us for Himself. And so to live for something else is to live for less than what God has for us. And so Jesus warns, Paul warns, James warns, do not live for pleasure. But James's here, words are even harsher. Because he's, he's, he's speaking to those who said, I don't care, I want to live for pleasure. And he's saying, there's a sober judgment coming for you. Now, go back to verse 4 quickly. Or I'm sorry, look at verse 6 first. Verse 6, James goes on to say, You have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. Now, there's a reason for us to believe that he's talking literally here. Because what he says in verse 4 it would obviously be taken literally as well. He says, Indeed, the, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you have kept back by fraud, they cry out. In other words, he's talking about people, listen, he's talking about people who exploit the vulnerable. He's talking about those ungodly rich who use their money, who use their, their ability to employ people to take advantage of the poor. Guys, you need to understand something. God reserved his strongest language to condemn those people. Let that sink in for a second. This is not a political statement, by the way. This is not me telling you to, to vote a certain way. It has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with the wickedness of men's hearts. It has everything to do with the fact that God says, listen, if I call you to know me, and to know me means to, to learn to be conformed to my image, and I identify with the vulnerable. So when you take advantage of the vulnerable... You anger me. That's sobering, isn't it? Family and I, we were talking about this issue a little bit uh, last week, about the issue of justice and, and specifically how it applies to like how we use our money. And we talked about how um, there's certain clothing shops maybe we shouldn't shop in because we, it's pretty clear that those clothing shops um, get their clothes from uh, sweatshops in other countries where workers are highly exploited. And it's difficult because once you start going down this road, you really do kind of realize, well, where do we draw the line for justice and injustice? And, you know, we have a budget as well, and so if we only buy at the other shops that promise to uh, not to work on sweatshops and it's going to cost us 10 times as much for a T-shirt as it's going to be at these other shops, I mean, how does that work? How do we deal with this? And we were, we were talking about this. And to be honest, we didn't come with a clear answer of where do we draw this line. But it was challenging to think about this, that God would call us as wealthy people because we are wealthy people. People who live in Great Britain, even if you're on the dole, you're wealthy people compared to the rest of the world. We are wealthy people, and what do we do with that wealth? We should be serious about this, sober about this. Now, with all that, all that being said, Here's what I believe James is wanting to do. James is using sort of Old Testament language to basically say this, this kind of person, this ungodly rich, 
God's will judge, guaranteed. Listen to what the psalmist wrote. This is in Psalm 73. I'm I'm reading out of uh, the New Living Translation because I like the way it paraphrases. The psalmist writes this, Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. And he asks himself, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? And you can read the whole psalm. Go back and read the whole psalm. He, he wrestles with this issue. Why do the wicked prosper? How come it seems like bad people get away with bad things? And I try to keep myself from doing bad things. And it doesn't seem to benefit me. Here's what he's wrestling with. And then he says this, listen, in Psalm 73, he says, Then I went into the, your sanctuary, O God, and finally I understood the destiny of the wicked. In other words, when he meditated on who God was, that God was just, and that God promised to bring justice, that's when he found peace. This is not a situation either in Psalm 73 or in James, where this is where we go, yeah, get them, God. Destroy those people. Where we're wanting some sort of vengeance, no? This is the cry of someone who's saying, God, will you indeed bring justice? The number one question I get asked as a church leader is, if God's so good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Number one question, asked all the time. A variety of different ways, but asked all the time. Here's the reality. It's because God is a God of justice that we even ask that question. We ask the question, where is God when this happens? Where is God when that happens? Why is it there's so much still suffering in the world? Not just my suffering, but other people's suffering. Why is that the case if God is good? We ask that question because God is good. And in other words, because God is good, we have a sense of justice. We have a sense there is right and wrong. And we say, how long, oh God, before you do something about this? James is writing to believers who their own suffering and the historic suffering of their people cries out the same way. How long, oh God? And James is saying, not long now. Not long now. Isn't it amazing, guys, how we all cry out for justice, for sins done against us and others, but we don't cry out for justice for the sins we have done. We cry out for mercy. I'm bringing this up here, not because this is what's in the text here. I'm bringing this up here because I think it's important for us to recognize something. The Bible's clear the reason God has not come back to judge is he's waiting for people to turn back to him. It's because he's patient and long-suffering and merciful. I want you to think about this. Seriously, think about Think about if Jesus came back to judge the earth five years ago, I wonder how many of you would have still been lost and not known who he was. How about 10 years ago? 15, 20 25 years ago. In the 1970s, when there was the the first kind of phase, 60s and 70s, the first phase of the Cultural Revolution, when things were changing so drastically, and for the most part, a lot of it was for the worse. Some of it was for the better, but a lot of it was for the worse. Things were changing so drastically. Many Christians thought, Jesus has to come back, man. I mean, come on. How bad can it get? You know, I'm glad he didn't come back. (laughs) 
because I would have been lost. I would have been judged instead of forgiven and saved. We want justice, and justice will come. This is what James is promising. what Scripture promises. Justice will come, but let's recognize what James said earlier. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We need mercy first. Now, I don't think James is saying there's no way once somebody's this rich and this ungodly that they can be saved. Jesus answered the question they could. Difficult, but not impossible. He can save anybody. But he's wanting these people to recognize God's going to judge. It's a sober judgment, and that sobriety should cause us to endure. God, okay, I want to endure if it means more people will find your mercy. Even these hideous people that are guilty of heinous crimes. Now, so that's the first motivation for us to endure to the end. It's the sobriety of his judgment. Here's the second thing, going quicker. The hope of his coming. Look what he says in verse seven. Therefore, he switches gears and begins to speak to, probably in this context, the godly poor. But it applies to anyone who wants to follow after God. Therefore, be patient, brethren, he says, until the coming of the Lord, until Jesus comes back. Notice what he says. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Now, he's not just writing to a crowd that knew a farmer or two. He's writing to a crowd where the majority of people were farmers. I mean, that's what they did. It was an agrarian society. And they all recognized that it was difficult to actually irrigate. They didn't have like sprinkler systems and uh, the Romans did have some pretty uh, complicated canal systems, but they usually were used for sort of urban settings, not for agriculture. And so basically what you were determined or what you were dependent upon uh, to make sure your crops grew was this early rain and this latter rain. So the early rain came in like October, November, so you had just maybe prepared your fields and you plant your seeds and that rain would come and it would soak the ground and that seed would germinate and it would begin to sprout, and it would, it would grow as long as there was moisture in the ground, and then come about springtime, you're praying again for that latter rain to come, March, April. Because when that latter rain would come, then it would give fresh moisture, and then whatever was planted would come to where it would bear fruits and be ready to be harvested. And the thing goes, all that work, the plowing of the ground, the spreading of the seed, the, the praying for rain, all that work was so that the crop could be harvested. It was all to that thing. That was what was precious, that was what was life or death. That was what was most valuable, was that crop. And, and James is saying, listen, in the same way, be patient. Be patient. Endure. Because here's, here's what's going to happen. This precious fruit is guaranteed. It's going to come to fruition. It's going to happen. Why do we know that? Because Jesus is our guarantee. Jesus himself, the fact that Jesus has rose from the dead, he's the guarantee that what's most precious we're going to experience. When he comes back, we get it all. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about, listen, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, though your faith be tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why you were redeemed, notice, with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
See, here, here's the thing. We tend to, we are tempted by, especially those of us here in this wealthy nation, we're tempted to think what's precious is what will bring me pleasure or comfort or security. And so we pursue monetary gain for those reasons. But guess what he says? All money is corruptible. All wealth is corruptible. Eventually, it will fall apart. And everybody who loves that money will be corrupted by it. Instead, here's what we know. What's more precious, what's more precious than your financial security? Your faith in Jesus. And why is that faith more precious? Because of what he gave, what was most precious, his own life. His shed blood, his broken body, washes our sins away, allows us to be with God forever. His resurrection guarantees that. This is the message of Scripture. This is the message of the Gospel. And and, and it's culminated when Jesus comes back. This is our hope. Guys, listen, our hope is not one day humans will get it right. (laughs) No, that's not our hope. It's interesting when Jesus was talking about about the last days, as it says here in James, or talking about the time right before he comes back. He talked about that some of the signs that will be happening will be that there'll be famines around the, around the earth. Now, saying that to that crowd, be like, well, yeah, okay, famine happens. It's a bad thing, but it happens. It was a fairly common thing when, when your technology is quite low and you're completely dependent upon the elements to make sure you can grow food. Guess what? That's not the case anymore, is it? In fact, fact, we already produce more than enough food to feed every single person. It is a crime that any human ever starves, ever, because we already produce enough food. Our technology is such that we have to, in Western countries like here in Great Britain, the United States, we have to pay farmers not to grow things because they can grow so much and it would would glut the market and the value, the economy would collapse because food would be too cheap and everyone would go broke. It wouldn't work. And yet, guess what we still have? Guess what we have more of today than we did in Jesus' day? Famine. Why? Because people are wicked. We are wicked by nature. We need to be changed. And we need Jesus to do the changing, which he begins now we put our faith in, and he finishes when he comes back. This is why any hope that we have cannot be based on a political party. It cannot be based on the plan of man. It has to be based on the return of Jesus. It's only when he rules completely on this earth that we're going to have peace. When the same Jesus that ascended descends and rules, that's the only way things are going to get sorted out. That doesn't mean that we don't pursue justice now. We'll talk about that in a second. But it does mean that our hope needs to be in him. And what James is trying to say to these people, guys, listen, be like the patient farmer that is dependent upon God's provision because he's the guaranteed of that which should be most precious to us. Now he says in verse 8, you also be patient. Notice what he says here. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now let me say something really quick about this being at hand. Is this James being mistaken? Because to be at hand means like really close by. That Jesus is going to come back any minute. Considering this was written almost 2,000 years ago. Was he wrong when he said this? No. See, the problem is we tend to look at the return of Jesus um, as people confined to space and time. 
so that we think, okay, event A, B, C, and D have to happen. Actually, we have to have uh, events A to Z, and then when the alphabet's done, boom, then Jesus comes back kind of a thing. So we're kind of waiting for all those things. But that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is all that God uh, needs to do has been done, and that what you have is the, sen- the sense of that Jesus is going to return any time, and that what he's doing is kind of paralleling what's happening in space and time. One of the things the Bible teaches really clearly is, is that, that Jesus reigns now uh, in his church, in the lives of his people. So we, we talk about the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. God the Spirit dwells in us. He's the Spirit of Christ, and he reigns in us. He's changing us from the inside out now. We, we sometimes use language that Jesus is the pastor of this church. We're just kind of sheepdogs that bark people towards Jesus. He's the, really the pastor of this church. He's the one that's going to lead. He's the one that's going to guide. He does so through his word. He does so by his spirit. So he's actively working out his kingdom. The kingdom is kind of growing in one sense, but it's also not here yet. But they're going to intersect any day. They can intersect any time. And the church always, for 2,000 years, has lived with that kind of expectancy. Jesus could come back any day. And that's always been their hope. Now, the hope is of his coming. And notice what he says when he says establish your heart. This is a great word, this word established. It literally means, listen, to turn resolute in a certain direction. I'll read that again. To turn resolute in a certain direction. That's what established means. It's, it's the idea of a sprinter. And he's in the blocks. And he sees where he's going to go. And when they say ready, set, he's up. And boom, he starts. And the last, the worst thing he can do is turn from this side to this side. He just goes right for the tape. He's established. He's turned resolute in that direction. Jesus, or James is saying here, listen, establish your hearts. Have your heart be turned in that direction. Have your heart be turned to God. God, I'm looking to you. Jesus, I want to know you. I'm waiting for you to return. My life's motivated by that. Now, let me be really clear about this as well. What we're talking about here is not, um, and, and we're not talking about just self-will. We're not talking about an exercise in self-help. We're not talking about like, okay, I'm going to just will this to be so. No, no, in fact, look at the way that the Scripture uses this word established, this idea of, of turning resolute in a certain direction. Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Paul writes, Now to him, speaking of God, who is able to establish you according to the gospel. In other words, it's God who is the one who's turning our hearts. It's God. It's kind of like when my kids were really small and I was trying to say something to them really important and they were kind of doing one of these, you know. Yeah, I just want to go play Lego. Leave me alone, Dad. And I'm like, hey, hey, listen to me. And I would take their hand, their face in my hands and say, look, look at Dad. Listen, this is important. And I would set their face resolute to mine so they'd know that I had something important to say. God does that with our hearts. He takes the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and he says, okay, now listen, listen, this is important. Look to me. And he sets us resolute towards him. A similar thing Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, listen, he says, may the Lord increase and abound, uh, and abound in love, or I'm sorry, may the Lord make you increase and abound in your love for one another and to all, just as we do to you, notice, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all saints. 
Again, it's the work that God's doing. Teaching us to love his people supremely. We're going to talk about that in a second. But also teaching us, listen, teaching us to say, okay, God, I'm going to focus on you. I can only love people because you love me. It's only me being secure in how, how, much, how your love is perfect towards me that I'm going to be equipped to love other people. But we're also not talking about sort of a passive patience where you're just kind of waiting for God to zap you or something. Again, look at how this word establish is used to turn resolute in a certain direction. The author of Hebrews writes this. He says, therefore, we, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Notice, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Here's how we do it. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. This is our hope. How are we going to endure injustice? Well, we need to be sober about the fact that God's going to bring judgment. That should sober us and motivate us to say, I'm going to endure, Lord, because I'm enduring so that you might save more. But also, listen, I'm going to hope I'm going to have an expectation that when you come, justice is going to be served. That which is most precious will be mine in its fullness. And because of that, Lord, I'm going to fix my eyes on you. You're my hope. Not this church, not this government, not this world. You. You're my hope. And this is the third thing. This is where we get really, really practical. I'm almost done. He talks here now about what I'm going to call the priority of his people. The priority of God's people. You see, God doesn't want us just to have some sort of a, a vague philosophy or just kind of an idea that we hold on to. James is incredibly practical. He wants us to respond to this. He wants us to say, okay, all right, if you're going to endure to the end, it's going to take healthy relationships. You're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You're going to have to prioritize Relationship with God's people. Look what he says, verse 9. In this context, he says, Do not grumble against one another. Brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, notice also how he switched uh, in verse 7 from kind of just saying, You rich, to dealing with brethren. He's talking to believers here. And he's saying specifically, listen, he's saying, I don't want you guys to be grumbling against each other. Now, why is he saying that? Because James recognizes what Jesus also taught, that our love for God's people can easily grow cold, especially when we're dealing with injustice. Listen to this. Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 24. Again, I'm quoting the NLT. He says, Jesus said, And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, this is what happens. Jesus says, here's what you can expect as we get closer to my return. What's going to happen? People are going to say they speak for God and they don't. False prophets are going to increase more and more and more. False religions are going to increase more and more and more. He says, you know what else is going to happen? Sin's going to be rampant. I mean, can we be honest? Even when I say the word sin, doesn't that sound a bit old-fashioned? I mean, even if you grew up in the church, I say sin, and we kind of go, 
use a different word, John. It's not really cool to use the word sin. It feels weird, doesn't it? Why? Because in our day and age, nobody sins anymore. You might make mistakes. You might do something that you shouldn't do. But you know, you learn by those mistakes, so it's okay. No, sin means we do what is abominable to God. We do what God says is wrong. What God says needs to stop. It's interesting. Jesus says, in the last days, sin will abound. People will just... In fact, there's a verse in the Old Testament, I want to say it's in in Isaiah, maybe it's in Jeremiah, where it says that there'll be a time where people will call good evil and evil good. I mean, if we're not in that day now, I don't know when we're going to get there or how bad it's going to be. And because of these things, guys, because we're going to see injustice increase, what's going to happen? The love of many, and he's referring to specifically the love of God's people, of many, is going to grow cold. Have you noticed that? Without raising your hands or showing any uh, any answer to this, just you know, answer this in your own hearts. How many of you have been involved in church life, even in this church, and you've thought to yourself, man, I'm so sick of church people. The way they treat me, the way they deal with things, I'm sick of it. And you just want to give up on church. You know what that is? It's love growing cold. And it often grows cold because of injustice. This is why James is saying, don't grumble. Don't feed that coldness. Don't encourage that lovelessness. Because here's the reality, guys. We still sin against God, even as Jesus followers. We still sin against God. And how often does he forgive us? Every time. He's faithful and just to forgive us. Therefore, let's not grumble against each other, but instead, let's press on in love. We need that if we're going to endure. We need to be the kind of people, as injustice increases, that we practice justice. And it's just for us to forgive one another because God, who is the just one, endured our injustice by dying for us on the cross. So let's not grumble against each other. He then goes on in verses 10 and 11 to use the examples of the prophets in general and Job specifically. The prophets he uses as an example. He says, take the prophets as an example. He says, these guys spoke in the name of the Lord because they're an example of suffering and patience. These guys all knew if they spoke for God, they'd suffer for God. They knew that was going to be the case. And they did it anyway. You can read Hebrews chapter 11. There's a whole list of these men and women of God who trusted God and some of some whom uh, experienced radical deliverance and miracles, but some of whom suffered greatly because they trusted God. And James is saying, these guys are good examples to us. But also, listen, he mentions Job. And if you know the story of Job, you know Job starts off, the book of Job starts off with Job getting this great recommendation uh, by God himself. This is a righteous man. But the devil's not happy with that, so the devil uh, basically says, you know, he's only a righteous God because you protect him. If you would let me at him, I bet you he wouldn't be righteous anymore. So God says, okay, I'll tell you what, you can go this far and no farther. And lets him do some really heinous things. God allows, the book of Job says, God allows Satan to take away Job's family, to take away all of Job's money, and to take away Job's health. The only thing he, he leaves is Job's wife, who basically nags on him all day. That's all he leaves with Job. And the Bible says with all this, Job still didn't sin with his mouth against God. He still trusted God, even though he was going through this hideous suffering. His friends, who were supposed to be these really great religious people, right? These great faithful people, were like, Job, you know what? Just confess your sin. He's like, you know what? If I knew what it was, I would. But I honestly don't know what what I've done wrong. But I just trust God. You don't trust God. Obviously, you don't trust God. Otherwise, this bad stuff wouldn't happen to you. 
okay, we can say I don't, but I know I do, and I just don't know why this is happening. This goes on for 42 chapters until at the very end, God says, do any of you guys, Job's friends, do any of you guys know what you're talking about? No. And even to Job, Job, you're beginning to think you've been treated uh, unfairly, but let me ask you something. Do you have any idea of who I am or what I'm doing? And Job has to go, you know what, I, I don't know anything. And what ends up happening is God restores, not just to him, the things that he's had before, but he was more blessed in the end than in the beginning. And God was doing this because the Bible says, what James says right here, why? Listen. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now let me ask you a question. Do you have a problem with the fact that God would let this man suffer greatly and then sort of make things nicer for him again? Would you have a problem with that being an issue of compassion and mercy? I do. I look at that and I go, how is that compassion? Why don't you leave him alone? That would be compassion. How is that merciful? The Bible doesn't say that God's being compassionate and merciful to Job. He's being compassionate and merciful to us. God, listen, God allowed the prophets and men like Job and even Jesus himself to suffer greatly. Why? So that we could see, man, God is still good and he's still in control. Because we deserve to suffer greatly. But they did not. Job did not deserve to suffer the way he suffered. But God allowed him to suffer to show us that he, God, is in control. He allows suffering, he ends suffering. And it's because he's merciful and compassionate that we can be hopeful that he is indeed going to do what he said. End all suffering. And like Job, our end will be better than our beginning. This is what he's talking about. Not some sort of mamby-pamby, put your faith in God, say these prayers, live these principles, and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's rubbish. No. That life on this earth is difficult, and God's letting the suffer for the benefit of others. You see, this is what James is trying to say to these believers in this church in Jerusalem. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, it's unjust. Yes, God's going to judge, but he's allowing you to suffer so other people can see that God's still worthy to be trusted. You ever thought about that? See, sometimes, guys, we look at our own suffering and we think, this is horrible. Why is God letting this happen to me? And then, we, then someone tells us, well, God's going to give you something better later on. Maybe he's not. Maybe what God's going to do is let you suffer so somebody else benefits. You know what that's, what that's like? It's like being like Jesus. That's what it means to follow him. Not quite as attractive as you thought, is it? Guys, listen. Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. God calls us to endure suffering because he uses our suffering to give credibility to his goodness, that he's still trustworthy. Why did God allow his only begotten son to absorb the sins of every person who ever lived on the cross. Because he's good. Because he's good. He doesn't want anybody to perish.
He doesn't want you to perish. Christian believer, are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to endure suffering for the sake of somebody else? Listen, I am absolutely convinced that when we see Jesus face to face, we're going to say, Lord, it was worth it. You know why I'm convinced of that? Because when the Bible gives us a picture of what heaven looks like, it is Jesus with the Father on their throne and all believers around that throne are taken off their crowns, which are a picture of their rewards, and casting them at the feet of Jesus. You're worthy. You're worth it. All the suffering we experienced, Lord, it was worth it. Your goodness is seen. Your goodness was made known. For all our talk about injustice and wanting justice, how about wanting to demonstrate the goodness of God by enduring injustice? Because we know it's going to be temporary. Because we know Jesus is going to bring justice when he gets back. Especially among God's people. Especially among us as believers. Last thing, verse 12. James says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into, New King James says judgment, but it should say hypocrisy. That's what the word actually is. It's the word for hypocrisy. Lest you fall into hypocrisy. Again, James is echoing his older brother Jesus' words in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus says, I say to you, do not swear at all either by heaven for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, or grow back in my case. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. When Jesus gives that command, he's basically saying, listen, have such integrity that what you say, you do. You don't have to promise, you don't have to swear you don't have to sign a contract. Not that it's wrong at all to sign a contract, but he's saying you just, you, you're so known for your integrity, especially among one another. Why? Because if we're going to prioritize God's people so that we can endure for the end, listen, that means we need to recognize our integrity encourages God's people. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that the righteous swears to his own hurt. Do you know what that means? It means he commits to something even if it turns out it's not for his benefit. It turns out that he's worse off for it. These are seriously heavy words, but know why he's writing these things. James is writing these things, notice, <coughs> to encourage people to endure to the end. Folks, if you, and I'm talking to you guys that are Jesus followers, you guys that already believe in Jesus. If you are thinking you want to follow Jesus because it's going to make your life so much better, you're going to give up. Eventually you're going to quit. Because all those that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. That's what the scripture promises. But if you want to follow Jesus because you believe he is who he said he is, that he's trustworthy, that he's good, and therefore he's the proof that God is good and trustworthy, and therefore you know that all injustice will be dealt with, and you can endure until then, you'll endure until then.
And when you do, you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant.